We have to start recognizing as an industry that the grid works against the rules of physics, not politics. And it works the same everywhere. And so one of the things that used to drive me crazy about this industry, both as an industry executive and a regulator, and people would say, oh, it's different. It's different. Well, it's actually not that different. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Brian Gutnick. Brian, good day. Good day, Jeff. We've got a fantastic guest lined up today, and I'm really looking forward to continuing our conversation on the critical role of infrastructure on the decarbonization of the power sector. That's right, Brian. We're talking this season, as you said, about infrastructure, and we've talked about physical infrastructure, energy storage. You know, we've talked a little bit about the grid from a physical perspective around the infrastructure. But today we're going to take at it from a little different perspective. We're going to talk about the more the regulatory portion of the grid. It's not just we have the grid infrastructure, but thinking about how the grid operates, how we maintain the grid, how we think about how the grid connects to the bigger picture. And so I'm I'm just really excited. We're joined by a fantastic guest today. We're joined by Audrey Silberman. She's an experienced leader in the energy industry. She's focused on the global energy transition as a senior advisor and board member for multiple organizations, and her experiences is pretty phenomenal. She's an expert in power system markets and electricity sector regulations. Having worked in multiple organizations, as I said before, she was CEO of Australia's energy market operator, AMO. She was chair of the New York State Public Service Commission and president of the Department of Public Service was an executive and chief operating officer at PJM Interconnect and a VP at Excel. And most recently, Audrey was a vice president and now an advisor at X, which is Alphabet's moonshot factory. Now, I know I just kind of threw out a lot of names, and let me just break it down just to have you all get a sense of really the the amazing work that Audrey has done as we think about the grid. I said that she's worked with X, which is a part of Alphabet, Well, Alphabet's the parent company for Google right now. So amazing work they're doing in this space. I mentioned the Australia Energy Market Operator, AMO. Well, that organization is responsible for managing gas and electric systems across Australia with the role of helping to ensure access to affordable, secure, and reliable energy. It sounds pretty important. PJ Interconnect, it's the independent service operator, ISO, that covers multiple states in the U.S., including Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, as well as parts of Ohio and Indiana. And again, their role is to ensure that the electricity is delivered reliably and affordably to customers in those states. And the final organization I mentioned was the New York State Department of Public Service. Well, they're the staff organization for the New York State Public Service Commission. What's the Public Service Commission? Their role, their department has a mandate to regulate electricity, gas, water, communications and steam services all across the state of New York with a very similar theme to what we talked about with the Australia Energy Market Operator, ensuring safe, reliable utility service at reasonable rates to customers. So Audrey, we're just so thrilled. You've got just an amazing background in this space, really focusing on delivering reliable and affordable electricity to members of our society, both in the U.S. and from your previous roles in Australia. So thank you for joining us today and welcome to Cutting Carbon. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Audrey, based on the experience Jeff talked about, you've been a CEO, a regulator, and an entrepreneur in the energy industry for three decades now. What are some of the shifts that you're seeing in the industry? Well, I think there are a number of major shifts that are going on. And first of all, let me tell you, I'm really pleased to be here. And thanks for the chance to meet with you. One is, of course, is the massive shift that's happened is that the industry now, from being maybe a reluctant acceptance is really embracing the fact that we are changing from a grid that was previously dominated by fossil resources to one that is going to have to accommodate renewables and storage and hydrogen, and where a lot of things are going to be happening at the edge of the system as a result of electrification of transport, electrification of homes, PV solar. So the shift in the industry is, I think, not one from saying, well, I don't see how we can do this to we are going to do it, and now we need to figure out how to get it done. So, Audrey, based on your experience, is the electrical grid ready for the transition that we're embarking on? And, and if not, what are some of the ways that we need to modernize the grid? It's not ready, but it's, it's not surprising it's not ready because this is such a significant change. So the first thing we have to do We need to recognize that if we're going to start relying on wind and solar and storage as resources, the power grid infrastructure needs to be updated, but also actually expanded to go to those areas where those resources are best. I mean, one of the factors around using renewable energy is that you want to be making sure you're exporting it from the regions of the country that have the best resources. Otherwise, it gets very expensive. But we don't have power grids to those areas. And so building the infrastructure for that will be important. The other piece that has to change is that we're going from a power system that if it's going to rely upon renewables, we need to take advantage of the fact that we need geographic diversity to help us. You know, we all know the sun sets at night. It doesn't shine the same way everywhere. The wind doesn't blow the same way. But if we can actually build transmission to flow power from one region or another, where there might be excess solar in one region, we can send it to another region that's deficit. We never thought about building a system like that. We didn't need to. So that needs to change. And the other thing is the fact that it's much more complex, the amount of data that we need. The fact is, is that when we move from managing resources like coal and gas, which are highly controllable and highly predictable, to resources that are dependent on weather, it's a much more complex management system. And when we add to that, as part of this transition, we're requiring electrification of transport, electrification of heating, we're going to be using power in a very different way. And all of those things need to be thought out. And so we need to plan the system with the end in mind, with the also the recognition that when we start adding renewables to the system, coal and even gas will eventually become less and less competitive. Those plants will either be compelled to retire because we are worried about a carbon, or they'll retire because of economics. But we need the power system to work, and they provide additional capability that we will need, such as the technical things like inertia and voltage support and frequency. So we have to plan the system with the assumption that those capabilities of how we keep the system running efficiently and reliably need to be supplied in a different way, and it has to work 
before those plants retire because we can't wait until afterwards to discover whether it works. So it's a very much a, an exercise of everyone needs to be at the table. We need to be eyes wide open on the complexity, not that it can happen. And then we need to act in a way that is going to produce the most efficient outcome for consumers because energy is obviously the most essential of essential services. And if we don't get it right, the rest of the economy will falter. So, Audrey, I want to pick up one of the things you mentioned. In this season, we do have a conversation with Jen Curran, who's one of the VPs over at MISO. But one of the things that didn't come out, and you mentioned, is this concept of geographic diversity of supply, that if it's a sunny day on the East Coast and the West Coast doesn't have a sunny day, that we could move power coast to coast. But, you know, we do have the ISOs in the U.S. and the regions, but I don't think it's necessarily obvious to our listeners that there isn't a singular grid in the U.S. that power generated in the Midwest or the East Coast or the West Coast can easily work its way to the other side of the country. And this concept of having a singular interconnected grid may be something new, not just for the U.S., but for other parts of the world. Is, is that true? Well, I think in most parts, you know, the grids are interconnected, but they're not necessarily run as a one large Eastern interconnection system. PJM and the Midwest ISO have long had a contract that was put in place, in fact, when I was there, where they work closely together. There's discussion going on on the West Coast about how to deal with the diversity or take advantage of the diversity that we have west of the Rockies to the Pacific Coast. But the importance of doing this now as a way of making sure the grid stays reliable, secure, and it's done with that large regional approach is really important. You know, ironically, in Australia, which has what we call one of the longest and skinniest systems, it would be almost like one big skinny system that went from New Brunswick to Texas, is putting in a second big interconnection. And even last week was a great uh, sort of example. They had so much solar on roofs in South Australia They were pleading with people to use more electricity. They had too much. And they ended up having to dump it. But they are in the process of building transmission from South Australia to Sydney. So think Texas to New York. For that very purpose of saying, well, we've got a lot of excess in some parts of the country. We're deficit in other parts of the country. We could use it. Or if we're not deficit, it's cheaper. It's probably a better way to put it because it's not deficit. And if we did that, the whole system would run more efficiently. So it's that kind of thinking that and planning that we need to think about. If you think about that same thread, the larger amount of interconnects so that you don't have to basically throw away power or ask people to turn on more devices because you don't know what to do with the power, what are the other challenges or elements we need to add as we think about the grid to resolve those problems of oversupply, or supplies not where demand is. What are some of these other challenges and the solutions, Audrey, that we need to bring to the table? Well, one of the problems that we have to do is we have to start recognizing as an industry that the grid works against the rules of physics, not politics, and it works the same everywhere. And so one of the things that used to drive me crazy about this industry, both as an industry executive and 
a regulator. And people would say, oh, it's different. It's different. Well, it's actually not that different. I've now run grids in the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere, and I could tell you, not that different. And in fact, the physics are the same everywhere. So how do we take advantage of things and move things at speed? When I think one of the phenomenal changes that's happening in our power industry is the move towards electrification of transport. Well, people are going to sell cars everywhere. If you buy a Toyota, and that Toyota can be used to both charge the grid or charge your home, the people who are manufacturing their cars, if it works differently in different regions or even different cities in the U.S., the costs just go up. They don't know where those cars are necessarily going to go. And so how do we look at protocol standards if we're looking at electric heat pumps? How do we make it so that these heat pumps can work the same everywhere if they can provide value to the grid because we can shift when they're used and people can get paid for it or credited for it? How do we create programs so it's the same everywhere? I kind of liken it to the Uberization of the power grid or credit cards. We all know and we're all used to If we go anywhere in the world that has Uber and we turn on our app, it works the same way. If we have a credit card, I remember when I first started traveling, you you had to go through such a, you had to get American Express checks, you had to exchange currency, all of that. We're so used to these platforms now that work internationally. We need to be thinking about the grid the same way. It all needs to work the same. So that way when we're selling goods, when we're learning, All of it, the protocol can be standardized as quickly as possible, which will give a few things. It'll reduce costs and it'll allow for a lot more innovation around the right things about how to make things work better. And I think that type of rethinking and getting away from the idea, well, mine works differently, you don't understand. We can't afford it anymore. We can't afford the time for that kind of hubris, if you will. We need a bit more humility. And Audrey, I love your sentiment of the physics of the grid is the same, regardless of where you are. You mentioned challenges around things like frequency support and inertia, characteristics of the grid that we take for granted. And to your point, as you start adding more renewables and taking more dependable baseloaded fossil offline, those characteristics start to matter. But the physics of inertia doesn't matter where it's a 50 hertz grid, a 60 hertz grid in the US or Australia or Europe. The physics is the physics, so as we come up with solutions, to your point, they could and should be applied everywhere. That's right, and this could be across the board. I mean, another piece that we all need to know, we should only learn it once and then apply it everywhere. For example, I'm a trustee member of the RMI board, and we were having a discussion recently about work that had been done around creating better mechanisms, control mechanisms for resiliency of rooftop solar in uh, storms, in hurricanes. And once we learn how to do that, wouldn't it be better that these quickly become the accepted standards and are applied everywhere so not every grid across the world that suffers a hurricane says, oh, we need a better standard. How about if we find out we need a better standard? The other one is, uh, for example, inverter standards. We learned the hard way in Australia that because we didn't have good inverter standards, every time there was an incident on the grid, a lot of the rooftop solar shut off. That didn't matter when it was 1% or 2%. But when it's supplying 30 20 30% of the load and it all goes away at once, it's a big problem. And so these are the things that I think as a global industry, we need to do much better sharing of data and acceptance that 
once we figure it out someplace, we should look to make sure it becomes widely applicable everywhere else and not make the same mistake over and over again. You're listening to Cutting Carbon. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, please check out our show notes. And if you like what you hear, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go back to the conversation. You know, it strikes me, Audrey, that we need to be deliberate with the attributes that we need and then to make sure that they're there. Because some of these attributes, you know, we didn't have to think about inertia because in the past it came along for free with the the generation you had. So you didn't really have to design the system for it. It kind of came along. Well, as you mentioned today with increasing renewables, that doesn't come along for free. And if we don't structure and be deliberate about that's an attribute we need to encourage and make sure is there, we won't have that. So it seems the market structure is really important in this. It really is. We in the U.S., we think about the world as capacity and energy and ancillary services. And I like to not think that the reason we think about them is ancillary. And those are things like frequency management, inertia, things that just came when you synchronize generation to the grid. They're still required, and now they're no longer ancillary, but essential, and they need to be purchased as essential services, and we need to make sure there's enough of them. So my example that I've used is when I was at AEMO, we ran into issues in Australia where we put a lot of wind generation on the same part of the grid, and and the controllers of the wind generators, after they were commissioned, started creating oscillation issues on the grid. And I did a call around to my colleagues in the U.S. and Europe and discovered, yeah, we had those problems in ERCOT. Yeah, we had those problems in California. And I think, well, we can't as an industry say every group of engineers and every utility around the world has to learn on their own that this is going to be a problem and how to solve it. What we need to do is create the models that are smart enough, and this is where digitalization comes in, that when you model a system... It says, okay, when this happens and you take that generator out, here's where you're going to see problems. And it it becomes, and here are the solutions. Not, yeah, you're going to have problems, lots of luck versus you're going to have problems. And here are the solutions that have been tried. And we'll put those solutions into this simulator and see if it works for you. And if it does, you're good to go. Audrey, one of the things we've been talking about, again, is these ancillary services, frequency control, voltage control, and these are characteristics of the grid to some degree that we get because of existing power generation equipment. Power generation equipment has large rotating mass that provides stability. But as those pieces of generation equipment are running less hours or maybe phased out in certain regions as we get significant amounts of renewables, the point you made, some of those ancillary services are no longer ancillary. They're not secondary or tertiary. They become primary aspects of grid operation we've got to maintain. So if you can help some of our, our non-technical listeners understand, when we talk about things like a frequency control or inertia, is there a way to think about that that makes it a little easier to understand? Yes, and I'm going to give you a non-technical answer for the non-technical listeners. So for the technical listeners, you can go grab a cup of coffee. 
So I think of it as this way, and it's the way it's been described to me. We all know that, for example, with water flowing through our pipes, we need to have pumps really pumping the water at a certain amount of pressure. If everyone turns on all their taps in a building and it's the same pump, unless the pump can somehow work a lot faster and harder, the pressure is going to go down and that nice flow of water is going to become a trickle or, or nothing at all. When that happens, it's an inconvenience. When that happens on the grid, the grid has to stay in total balance all the time. And suddenly it becomes out of balance and things start failing. And as soon as starts, things start failing, what happens on the grid, it's almost like if people remember the big blackout in 2003 in the U.S., where suddenly the frequency dropped. It happens instantaneously across the entire eastern seaboard almost, and we all lost power because the grid went down. So we worry about that on the grid, and so it's, it's why I don't, I don't think we should call it ancillary. I think we should call it essential. It all has to stay operating within a secure envelope, and it needs to be responsive to everything that happens in real time. And big generators provided that capability to us. When they're gone, we have to find another way to do it. Audrey, you talked a little about digitalization and the importance there. And I'm wondering, as we think about, again, your, your broad experience, you joined X, again, which is part of the, the Alphabet family, to lead Tapestry, and that's X's moonshot to the electric grid with a focus on grid digitalization. And your roles kind of evolved. You're now an advisor to X. So maybe, again, help our listeners understand the importance of grid digitalization, what it means, and why it's so important. Sure. One of the things that's going to be very important as we think about the transition is to make sure that all of the investments we make are as efficient as possible and are going to solve the challenge. One aspect of digitalization that could be important is going to be critical is getting the transparency of information. Right now, it's impossible to model the power grid in a way that you could see it across a region involving multiple utilities and how they might interact with each other. Everyone who runs a transmission company or distribution company, there are all these different sets of models. When in fact, what we need is a whole model of the system that we can look at and people who are operating it or making decisions about it can see that visibility. That's going to be really important. The second thing about digitalization is, you know, how to use data better. There's a huge amount of waste in the system today where we use models that are based on planning models on the grid about how much volume, if you will, the transmission uh, system can carry. When in fact, the amount will change instantaneously. It's very dynamic. And what we are doing is wasting a lot of capacity because we're not looking at what the system can carry in real time. And so digitalization allows us to make sure the system is operated more efficiently. The third piece is how do we use things like machine learning, artificial intelligence? Because as I said, the, the challenges are going to be really hard to manage in terms of all the data and everything that's happening on the system. And so if we can use machine learning to say, well, in all these circumstances, this is the right outcome and to have it instantaneously, that will allow us a lot more confidence to run the system with renewables. So digitalization to me is those pieces. The last is, is really transparency and solving issues. I mean, one of the things I hear about all the time is that people 
feel like they have right solutions, but they're operating in a black box. How do we make the information transparent? Again, if you know, we think about the internet and how it works and how we've made information transparency a way of driving innovation and driving efficiency and the best solutions, the grid could operate the same way. And there's no reason going into the 21st century, we shouldn't be using digitalization to provide that transparency and drive innovation that much faster. Audrey, you mentioned you talked about digitalization and this transparency of data. It seems to me that it's not just the transparency of maybe information about the grid and the generating technologies, the supply side, if you will, but also the demand side. I'm struck by our grid in the past would only know that a new load was turned on because the voltage would drop. You detect it and then you would have to respond to it. It seems this transparency, we've got the digital capability to say, I'm about to turn something on, get ready for it, be ready to respond to it, and then actually turn it on, that that must help in the system as well. I think we certainly need the predictability, but we also need the ability to operate the system, I think, in a much more flexible way. So the other piece of operating a decarbonized grid is recognizing flexibility. And one of the things that could be really valuable for digitalization is to understand how much flexibility we have at the demand side. So if, for example, we move to the direction of saying with electric vehicles, we know that we don't want to charge them all the time. And there may be times that we could use batteries actually in the home to go the different direction. But somebody's going to have to know how much is out there. And so providing that kind of level of information will be important. One of the things that uh, we're experimenting with uh, in Australia, we call it Project Symphony, is how to aggregate all this capability and keep the grid operating in a certain envelope so we don't get to the point where we don't have enough demand or we have too much and being able to use that flexibility to essentially operate as a buffer to change. To me, one of the wonderful things that could happen, if we imagine a power system where everything's electrified and we have the capability of understanding how much storage capability we have at the demand level, when we know at 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. that the wind's gonna die down, we then charge the batteries so that they're available for that afternoon. So we're creating this basically a whole of system optimization that uses all of the resources on the grid. Well, the amount of information that requires and the ability to do that at the local level does require both a huge amount of data, but also a very different way of using information because you're not gonna tell all those cars turn on or turn off. And so where the other piece of digitalization can come in is through automating that and making sure then that the system stays reliable. So it's predictability, full visibility, and automation. Symphony is a very appropriate name given it really is an orchestration of all of these, the bits and pieces coming together, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I want to continue on that theme as we think about digitalization because it just sounds so critically important. You know, what you're talking about is a fundamental shift in collecting and aggregating all this data, having the processing power, taking the information that you learn and with this concept of transparency or democratization of data, sharing that information out 
having the end users buy in, understanding that you've got an EV that's plugged in, you know, you make consent to it certain parts of the day, you're going to give up some charge because you're going to keep the grid running. I mean, it sounds like a, a new social contract, a new way of modeling. What's your thoughts on, on how we're taking that forward? I think there are beginning discussions on how do we do this. And I think it needs to be a front and center discussion of how do we create this transparency and what it could mean. One of the things that I learned early on as a regulator was this concept of information asymmetry. The belief was that the utility always had a lot more information than the regulator. I think going forward, imagine you had this transparency and a utility were to come in and say, I'm going to have a problem. With the amount of EVs that are going to going into this community next year, I'm going to have to upgrade a substation, and it's going to cost a couple billion dollars because it's in an area where land is really expensive. And everybody could look at that information. They could run the scenarios. They could say, yeah, that's actually going to be a problem. But rather than the utility then just going off and saying, and this is the solution, how about if all the entrepreneurs around got to see that same problem with the same type of data and say, oh, well, wait a minute, here's three or four other ways we can fix this. So you're not debating whether the problem exists or not. What you're doing is finding the optimal solution. And there's a single source of truth of what that is. So one, the regulator doesn't feel like they're in the, in the dark as to what's happening. Innovators get the same information. And the utilities get the advantage of not just the smart engineers who happen to work with them, but the entire community. It's almost like crowdsourcing solutions based on a single source of truth. And I think that's where regulation needs to go, because we can't afford as a society to think that only a small subset of people are going to solve this. And then once we do that, it also then lends itself to saying, and the next utility, who has the same set of issues can even get smarter because the models can say, oh, these are the problems you're going to see and here are the optimal solutions. So we could think about almost creating Amazon-type marketplaces where these solutions are easily accessible. Audrey, because you talked about the scenario, right, where the utilities and the regulators are are trying to solve these problems. I love this idea of, of crowdsourcing and bringing in the intelligence and the smartness and the knowledge of the community. What role do you think regulators play in advancing this and supporting the energy transition? I mean, obviously, we're all having to kind of rethink our roles and responsibilities here. What's the role of the regulator and what role do they play in the future? I think the regulators play a really critical role in rethinking about how we regulate utilities and how we incentivize them. Something we did, we recognized in New York, is that if you regulate utilities in such a way that the only way for them to get a return on their investment is to putting in capital, you shouldn't be surprised that they're always biased to putting in more capital. But if you regulated utilities to say that actually for them to reward their shareholders more is to find solutions that address the reliability obligations, that's always critical, but also do it in a way that reduces the total bill to consumers and that they can make money not only just on the capital they deploy, but on other parties' capital, so long as the outcome is beneficial for consumers, it changes the equation to one that the market looks at more, which is how do I provide more value to my customers at a lower cost, as opposed to how do I get a return of 
on my capital. It's really a return on value. And I think regulators need to start saying, well, the reason we've done this historically is because one, we thought it was always about the capital and that was the one thing we could look at. But again, if they have better information, they'll have the same information as utilities is to be able to model well, what is going to produce the better outcome for consumers and reward the utilities for that type of value. So it really does introduce competitive concepts because competitive firms, that's what we think about, into the utility structure. And I think that's going to be very important. The other is around information transparency. I think the goal should be recognizing it's not a longer like who wins or who loses in a rate case, but how do we get the best solution back out to consumers as quickly as we can? And the other is around looking at standardization. I think regulators, again, we spent a lot of time in New York designing models, market models, for introducing distributed energy resources, things like rooftop solar, into the New York market. And we had different tariffs, et cetera. It doesn't serve anybody if every city around the country has a different set of rules around how we value plug-in vehicles. I mean, when you think about it, for the first time in this industry, we're going to have mobile sources of energy. And the market should reflect that by being very standardized. And then that should be something that's global, getting back to my point, that those are all become soft costs that end up driving up costs to consumers. And I think, frankly, regulators could be the drivers of saying, they're going to be looking for a protocol that could be standardized everywhere to drive things faster and to make sure that there's doesn't have to be a, you know, has to be invented here mentality in the industry versus how do we get there fast and how do we get there cheapest and how do we get there in what such a way that the best outcomes for consumers in the economy are always at the forefront. So, Audrey, in addition to regulation, policy to drive a recognition of the outcomes we want in the grid moving forward, such as the decarbonization of the grid are critical as well. Can you maybe share some thoughts here in the U.S. on your thoughts around the impact that the IRA will have in terms of uh, driving decarbonization of the power sector? Sure. The IRA, and there's been lots of studies already of this in terms of what it's going to do around animating capital, what it's already doing around getting people to the table and looking for opportunities and making investments. And so to accelerate the change, not just here, but actually globally, is huge. To me, we don't have a lot of time. We have until tomorrow in utility speak to get this done if we're going to hit the 2050 goals. And consequently, the ability to get capital in, get it animated, get programs going, get the investment in, get the jobs in that we're going to need, all have to happen quickly. And what the IRA is essentially doing is putting the federal government saying, we get that and we're going to be moving forward. And that's getting private capital to the table too now and saying, well, let's go. So Audrey, let me just coming back to the big picture again, as we think about decarbonization and grids and needing this this grid of the future. And I think you kind of hinted at this a little bit with having worked on both sides of the Pacific, you know, North and South Hemisphere. What practices and trends do you see around the world kind of emerging that you would call 
best practices or what trends do you see developing? Trying to maybe gain some insights because in your experience, you've done things and been places that many people who are working for one company in one country won't see. So if you've got any insights, we'd love to hear them. Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is going to be really important as we move forward, we touched on this a little bit, is how do we plan the system? We have a tendency to think, well, we're going to iterate. We have a problem. We're going to solve that problem. When in fact, what we're really doing is a fundamental redesign of the power grid. My analogy that people use, well-worn but true, we are redesigning the airplane as we're flying it, and we can't let this airplane land. And so it's a very complex issue. Where I've seen this best is where people lean into that structure and say, we have to replan it as a system, not just building transmission. So we have to think about things like, if we're going to build this area and we're just putting renewables, the energy has to be firm. So we need a certain amount of batteries. We also know we need inertia and system strength, which is my layman's term, the kind of the ability of the system to take a knock and respond. The best analogy I ever heard was when you think about you drive your car across a highway and you hit a hit a rut, the car might blow a tire, it might veer off. But if it's a big truck, they don't even know it's there. Well, we're losing the big trucks. So we need things to be able to respond so that the system doesn't get knocked off. And so that means smart electronics that needs to happen. And so when we're building the system, what I saw in Australia, because we made those mistakes, we reverted away from just saying, well, when someone wants to build a wind farm, we'll look at what transmission they need, to saying, well, let's take a region and build what we call a renewable energy zone and think about how much renewables we want in that area and then what are those renewables going to need as complementary capabilities so that when they are commissioned, we know they'll work. And so it's planning it as an integrated system. It's almost like if you're going to go to a region of the country and say, we want to plan economic growth here. We're going to plan a, a shopping mall and schools and a community. You wouldn't just go say, so if we're putting the street in, what's it going to take for that street? You would put everything in. Well, what are we going to need for arteries, you know, arterial highways? What kind of shopping are they going to need? How are we going to make sure that there's enough water, enough heating capabilities? So we think about it as an entire system. We need to plan the power system the same way because we have to recognize that those renewables today rely heavily on the traditional generation. And when they're gone, they're gone. And so we have to assume they're gone and plan for that. So that's one. You know, and I think that's a good lesson learned from Australia and other parts of the world. The other piece that we have to start doing is really looking at how we use distributed resources better. So we need to have the distribution system operate as a full actor on the grid. And here again, there are examples in the U.S. and examples like Hawaii has done a huge amount of work looking at rooftop solar with batteries. We should take those learnings and think about how do we apply them elsewhere so that the distribution system one can be a full actor, but the other is can be a lot more resilient. I mean, one of the things that we know from climate change, of course, is that the storms, even now, are bigger, harsher, more difficult. And so we have to be thinking right now, not because these resources are going to be around for 25, 50 years, we hope. How are we building in a resiliency for a climate that's going to be very different 
than we are today. So having that foremost in mind, you see some of that work going on in Europe, but I, I think it's it should be, again, where regulators come in and start defining resiliency in such a way so that there aren't de- elongated debates. And we know what level of reliability we really want to have in an environment where the economy is going to be electrified and the climate itself is harsher. Those types of things, I think, I would look to what's happened in Australia and what's happened in Europe as examples, and other parts in the U.S., like Hawaii, which has done, I think, a really great job of thinking about how to use PVs as a major source on the grid. Audrey, I think those are are really great examples of how the grid's going to evolve and the kind of things we need to think through to the point you have made throughout this as, as we think about a new system where we're electrifying everything heating, cooling, transportation is things like severe storms, rethinking the system. We have to be prepared for the world ahead, the changes. Today, a hurricane comes through and knocks out the power. Well, you can still move around because you may have gas in your tank. But if you didn't charge your EV before the storm, now you have segments of society. And where do you get the power to do that? And there's, we know there's lots of great ongoing conversations. So thanks for kind of encapsulating that all together. And I want to thank you. It's been a great conversation. I've learned a whole bunch, really bringing a different perspective to the conversation, thinking about it from the regulator side of the house, as well as as what does the grid have to be for this to be successful. And I, I love your analogy of you're redesigning the plane in flight. There's only really, you got to get it right. You can't just kind of hope to get it right. You've got to think through all these different pieces that we've taken for granted for so many years. Thank you. It's It's been a pleasure and I've really enjoyed talking to you about it. I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast because the other thing that I think uh, as a society we have to recognize is that for all of us who are in this space, we think about it all the time. For most of the population, they only think about power when it's not there. And we have to, I think, think about a certain amount of energy literacy because so much of what we're doing today affects everybody. And it's important, I think, that we increase that understanding across really the general population and appreciate the work you're doing to help us get us there. Well, again, Audrey, thank you so very much for being here. And on behalf of the entire team, Brian and myself and and those behind the scenes, uh, a big thank you for being with us and sharing your knowledge and insight. Sure. Thank you. For folks who are interested in learning a little more, please check out our show notes. And as always, don't hesitate to drop us a note at cutting.carbon at ge.com. Again, thanks for listening. This is Cutting Carbon.